0: Our Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer once again with humble hearts asking you to bless us as we study this this portion that our brother James has read for us tonight. We have already prayed and we have been singing the hymns of faith, Father, that address our, our minds and heart to you and to your presence and to the greatness of every act and every word that you have ever said to us. And now we come to this passage, Father, asking You to bless us so that we can be more profound in our understanding and greater in our faith, and to live, Father, each and every day with a, with a robust, vibrant, dynamic faith that glorifies You in all that, all that we do because of the courage and because of the steadfastness of, of, uh, of faith that we have in the greatness and the, the faithfulness of Your promises. Thank you, Father, for, for this text. We pray that you give us eyes that see it in ears that hear. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If uh, if you're looking at uh, the announcement sheet, you're going to notice that I, I called an audible uh, tonight. We were going to uh, look at the Battle of Jericho tonight and uh, decided that uh, I, I want to. I'd, I'd rather preach that next Sunday morning That uh, the last three verses of Joshua chapter 5 tell us a lot of what's happening about the the Jericho battle in the very next chapter, chapter 6. And we never really emphasize this part of the story uh, when it comes to the battle of Jericho, yet one of the things that strikes me about the end of chapter 5 is that God, and, and the rest of the Bible really, is that God's appearing is never an accident and it's never without purpose Anywhere in the Bible. Now, the background to this particular part that James has read for us is that Joshua is near near Jericho. The people have been circumcised, the men have been circumcised and are healing up. The people have eaten of the promised land and are eating the produce of that land, the land that flows with milk and honey. And Joshua is near Jericho. And what is it that the text says? He looks up he looks up most people myself included usually look down while we're thinking i think that's what joshua is doing here i think that joshua is near jericho and he's been thinking about jericho because i don't think that this is the first time that joshua has been near jericho Now 40 years or so earlier, 38 years, the B'nai Israel, the sons of Israel, had come out of Egypt where they had been slaves for a very long time. And centuries before that, uh, uh, years earlier, the sons of Israel, the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, left Israel and they went into Egypt because of a famine that was devastating the land. And Egypt had become a refuge for them, but as the beginning of Exodus tells us, there's this Pharaoh that arises that that, uh, that comes to power who does not know Joseph and the family of Joseph, the, the B'nai Israel, the sons of Israel have become enslaved. Centuries later, a fellow by the name of Moses is born. He comes on the scene. He is the deliverer called by God, hand chosen by God to deliver the people by by uh, by God's power out of their enslavement to egypt they leave egypt they cross the red sea they witness the destruction of pharaoh's army they spend about a year or so nine to twelve months at the foot of mount sinai being in, in formed into a nation and informed of god's will and then they make their way to the promised land from the foot of mount sinai back in numbers chapter thirteen and fourteen the people arrive at a place to the south of the land of promise Called Kadesh Barni. It's at the southern end of the Promised Land. And Numbers 13 begins with the fact that there are these 12 spies or these 12 scouts that are chosen to go into the land uh, Shemua Shafat, Caleb, who is of the tribe of Judah, there's a fellow by the name of Egal, and then there's Joshua out of the tribe of Benjamin, there is Palti and Gadiel, and Gadi and Amiel, and Sether, and Nabi and Gul from the tribe of Gad. from Gad. What a name. These are the 12 scouts that go into the land and scout it out. Now, they go into the land, and according to Numbers chapter 13, verse 21, they go all the way to the north of the Promised Land, way north of the the Sea of Galilee, to a place called Labo Hamat, Now there's some debate as to what the name actually is. Is the name of this town way up in the north Labo Hamat or is it Labo Hamat means the entrance to Hamat and they didn't really go into that city but they got at least that far. Now if they had traveled the patriarchal road which is also known as the ridge route they would have encountered all the way going through uh, what would later become Jerusalem, all the way along the Jordan River, up through the northern part of what would become Galilee, north of the Sea of Galilee to Labo Le- Hamad. It is very likely that they would, have become, they would have come very, very close to Jericho 38 years earlier. Now, the fact that they see all of these fortified cities is an indicator that that is the route that they took, the ridge route or the old patriarchal road just to the west side of the Jordan River all the way up into northern Galilee. Now, here is the account of what happened in numbers as these scouts go up that way and come back. In Numbers 13 beginning in verse 27, they give a report, "We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey." Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are what? Fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said... We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. Chapter 14. That night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. And the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness... Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell, down, fa- fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. And they said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will lead us into that land, the land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us, verse 9, Only do not what? Only do not what, church? Rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be, again, afraid of them. Then in the next verse, verse 10, the glory of the Lord appears at the tent of meeting before all of Israel, and God is angry with the people and He wants to strike them down, but that is not what is going to happen What happens in the end after some intercession by Moses is that no one who treated the Lord with contempt is going to see the promised land with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. They will see the land. And Israel does something kind of ironic here. Israel begins to mourn and they begin to see the folly of their way and they change their mind about going into the land. And the next day they go into the high country and they say, let's go into the land that the Lord wants to give us. And Moses says in chapter 14, verse 41, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up. Because the Lord is not with you, you will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, He will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. God keeps those, those folk out of the promised land for 40 years until the last of those spies, the last of that generation is dead. And now Joshua is forty years older. Caleb is about eighty five. Joshua is is forty years older, probably at least eighty years in age. And he's near Jericho and he's remembering. And he remembers standing there with the spies, and he remembers them saying, We cannot take this land. We will die by the sword. Our families will be taken in plunder. Our families will have will be returned to slavery. We're going to die in this country. It's better for us to get different leaders and better leaders who are going to have our best interests in mind. And it's better for us to to not go into the land. And Joshua also remembers with Caleb standing at his side, tearing his clothes and telling the people this, that fear is rebellion to God. We don't... we think of of cowardice and bravery a courage as things you have or you don't have that if you're born and your DNA is kind of like John Wayne, then you have the courage. but if you're born and your DNA is kind of like Don knotts, then you're not so courageous but here's one of the amazing things that the Bible says about cowardice that cowardice. The, the lack of courage in this particular case the the lack of of bravery to do this amazing thing is sin and that's not only the old testament notice you know there's this this really amazing verse at the end of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21 and there's all of this talk about you know punishment and judgment and the, the, the second death and the lake of fire. And in verse 7, those who are victorious, those are, that are faithful will inherit all of this good stuff and I will be their God and they will be my children. Then verse 8, but then the cowardly the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, and those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Goodness gracious. All of a sudden, this thing that we thought was maybe a part of our DNA strain, the way that our DNA twisted, is all of a sudden seen as a character trait and not DNA. But it is an, an, an attribute, a characteristic of our faith, and it's lumped in... Spiritually speaking, with the unbelieving, the vile, murderers, the sexually immoral, and those that practice magic arts. The cowardly. When it comes to God's will and acting by faith to take the land or to take every promise that is given us in Christ Jesus. The cowardly, for goodness gracious. And as Joshua is reliving all of these thoughts about being there and tearing his clothes and the cowardice of the people and the lack of courage and the lack of bravery to do it, the lack of faith to go forward. He's reliving all of these thoughts. He looks up and he sees a man that is standing in front of him. And it's not just any man. It's a man with a drawn sword, which means that this is a man that is ready for action. In other words, he has drawn that sword and this man is ready to attack. And Joshua, who is probably about 80 years old and on top of that... He's this 80-year-old general. He goes up to the man who is armed with the sword. And you know what I think he's doing? Joshua, who is 80 years old and sees this man with a drawn sword, he goes up to fight this man. The battle has already begun. How, why do I think that? How do I know this? He asks, are you my friend or are you my enemy? He walks right up to him and says, Are you a friend or are you a foe? You have two options. The man has two choices, but he goes into a non-sequitur. He says, You're either for me or you're against me. And the guy goes, No. In the old King James. No. Neither. I am the commander of the Lord's host. And Joshua who is an elder among his people, who is a general in the eyes of the people, falls on his face and says, Command me. Which is, what, which is another way of saying, Do you have a message for me? I'm the general, but do you have a message for me? He's saying, Command me. And the commander takes it one step further. And he says, You need to cleanse yourself. You need to take off your shoes because your feet right now are on holy ground now some thoughts on this commander number one this is Jesus is it not true that God will come down in the form of a human being and deliver his people from their greatest battles it's a mysterious figure and it's a mysterious story true but I do not believe that this is an angel because angels do not accept worship at the end of Revelation John tries to, to, to bow down and worship an angel, but the angel says, don't do that because I too am a servant of God. You need to worship God. In fact, the angel gets pretty upset when John tries to worship him. and says, don't do that. You need to stand up. I'm a fellow servant. Worship God only. This man in Joshua 5 not only accepts that Joshua is bowing down before him, but he takes it, he takes it one step further. He says, you need to take your shoes off because you are in the presence of holiness itself. You are in the presence of the, the one who is without without beginning. What I, I think this is, is a preliminary manifestation of the eternal Word of God, second member of the Trinity, who came in the fullness of time, born of a woman, to redeem those under the law. He is the one who always comes to relate us back to God which is again part of the mystery of the, of the Godhead of the Trinity, but there is one in the Godhead whose specialty is to come to us and to relate us to God. He is God Himself, but He has come to relate us to God, and that is the mystery of the Godhead. This man, this, this being, this mysterious figure is the, 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 the pre-incarnate Christ in my understanding. But then secondly, and we'll end with these thoughts, Jesus is great and holy. There is a theme that that develops throughout the Bible and that is, you know, know, there's this point in Genesis where Jacob uh, wrestles with this this, uh, mysterious figure who is God and he's a wrestler. And then Job, you know, in struggling with God, meets God and God is in the tornado. And here is Joshua who is meeting God and it's God as a warrior. You know, you begin to get this picture that there, you know, when it comes to God, you know, there there may be a warm and fuzzy side, but there's also a side to God that is not warm and fuzzy. And there's not a lot of warm and fuzzy right here. But there is greatness here. And there is every superlative that is here. And I think the point is, is that if you do not see the greatness and the power and the majesty and the strength and the force of God then there's not much about God that is going to transform you because you do not see Him as powerful and you do not see Him as holy. In other words, you don't hear God say neither. You don't hear God say no. And it means something. Now, let me illustrate it this way. I come to your house. I I, I go to Jeff Glass' house. And he says, uh, oh, it's so good to see you. Mark, you may come in, but Absher, you have to stay out. And I would say, well, I I don't know how I'm supposed to do that. And Jeff says, well, I'm sorry, but you know, Absher has to stay out. Mark can come in. Well, there's not really any way that I'm going to be able to go into Jeff's house as much as I would like to. Beautiful home, gracious host. The reason is, is because I am, for better or worse, Mark Absher. I can't even say that I'm half Mark and half Absher. That this half of me could go into the house and this half can stay out because that's impossible because I am all Mark and I am all Absher. It's the same thing with Jesus. We say that we want want the Christ to be loving and we want the Christ to be a, a, a helping Christ to help us with our, our crises, to help us with our problems, but what we do not want is a Lord, holy, great, and powerful Jesus. I, you think about what the Hebrew writer says about the Christ in chapter 1. He says that this this great Jesus creates everything and sustains The universe, which is outside of our ability to conceive it with just His Word, His Word of power. Now, how do you ask someone like that to be your assistant? Initially, everyone comes to God like, like Joshua, that I have an agenda. Are you against me or are you for me? You're for me? Good. Then help me with these relationships. Help me with these finances. Help me with this job. Help me with this problem. Help me with this stress. And as long as we do this, as long as we see just this half of Jesus as warm and fuzzy, then what we're doing is we're asking Jesus to be our assistant. But how in the world do you come to the biblical Jesus with conditions on the cross one thief says are you for me or against me if you're for me then get me off this cross because I want to live I don't want to die are you for me or against me but then there's the second thief who realized that it it didn't matter if God was for him or against him but rather whether or not he was for God and said remember me in your kingdom and when you see who this really is in Joshua chapter 5 who is showing himself to Joshua who is remembering the lack of bravery the lack of, of courage when it came to facing that 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 promised land and all of the obstacles and all of the enemies and all of the, all of all of the giants of the land and all of the fortified cities. If you see who it is that Joshua is, is is talking to in Joshua chapter five, then you're really not afraid of the walls of Jericho in Joshua chapter six anymore. But you will always be afraid of those walls. You will always be afraid of those walls, and you will never you will never approach those walls or try to find a, a breach a gap in those walls in which to enter until you hear God say, Neither. No. In in thinking about this passage, I felt, you know, I just really need to stop for about 30 minutes and not talk. And just do business with with what it is that's happening with Joshua at the end of chapter 5. And whether or not, truthfully, I'm asking God, are you on my side or my enemy's side? Or whether or not I hear him say neither. I am the commander of the Lord's host. Who is really Lord of our lives? And who is it that we really see as Lord of our lives when we're facing the giants and facing the fortified cities and facing every obstacle and every discouragement in the world to give up our faith, to turn back, to choose a different leader? Who is it that we really see? Shepherds will be down here at the front if there's a spiritual need tonight that needs to be addressed through prayer or encouragement or study. If there's anything that our church can do tonight to help you draw closer to the Lord, who says no. Jeff's going to lead us in a song. And come down to the front and talk with these shepherds. They'd be glad to pray with you. And you can do it now as we stand and sing together.